Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome, everyone. My name is Lydia Finette, and welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I'm coming to you from one Rockefeller Plaza. I'm sitting in a glass front booth at Newsstand Studios with an incredible woman and guest today, Lauren Buida. But first, a word from our sponsors. I'm so delighted to have you here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we are going to have a fascinating conversation about something that I've never discussed on this show before, and I'm not sure that many people are thinking about it actively, and that's national security. So I want to tell everyone a little bit about you. You are the founder and CEO of Girl Security. You've authored articles, reports, and book chapters on national security, foreign policy, and public policy. And in September of 2022, You were named one of the most influential people in security by Security Magazine, and in 2021, named one of 50 women making the world a better place by InStyle. That's quite a resume you have, Lauren. Thank you. So I started this podcast because I live in New York City, and I feel like I'm constantly running into women who are at the top of their game, which I think is such an amazing opportunity for me to meet and learn more about industries. And I really wanted people to understand what it took to get to the top of an industry, especially people who don't have that kind of access. But selfishly, I also really started this podcast because I don't know a lot about a lot of things and I want to learn more. And so when I heard about you and what you're doing in the national security space, especially in terms of the nonprofit that you've started, I was fascinated. And I have to ask you, where did this journey begin for you? Where did you grow up? We're going to get into national security, but I have to understand who Lauren is and what this evolution was like. She's pretty boring. (laughs) (laughs) I do not agree with that. I've been in this podcast for half an hour. I have plenty of stories to tell. Uh, Well, I grew up in Worth, Illinois, which is a small suburb on the south side of Chicago, and then later on in Tinley Park. And I think I probably knew at a young age that I was interested In the human experience, I guess, is how I would diagnose it. I was always interested in understanding other people's struggles. And so that really carried forward into even high school, into college, where I wanted to understand war and conflict and the impact that that had on communities, both within the United States, but also globally. So I think my sort of interest was seeded very early in my childhood and then carried forward through my studies and then eventually into my career path as well. But when you say seated early, was that from watching the news, reading newspapers? I mean, you were growing up in a suburb of Illinois, so that wasn't something I'm sure that's on everyone's radar. It wasn't. Honestly, my life is lived through film. And so I think my favorite movies when I was young and probably not age appropriate that I was allowed to watch were war movies. So, you know, Full Metal Jacket and oh, Good okay. Morning Vietnam and yeah. a lot of film that my mom would take me she would take me to the movies with her because I was four of five. So I was sort of hanging around at the house and we would go see these movies. And I think I was just fascinated by the power that the government yields and sort of how war can completely disrupt people's lives. And that was fascinating to me. So you're one of five children. You're the fourth of five children. I have four children in my family that I grew up with and it's boy, girl, boy, girl, Mm. which I think has really informed a lot of my life and the viewpoints that I have on life because I was sandwiched by brothers and have a very strong younger sister. I wonder what was that makeup like for you and what was it like growing up 
with five children in a family. I have such deep love for my brothers and sisters. So I was four or five. The oldest above me is my brother, Brett. Growing up with four or five kids, I took a lot of hits. There was a lot of punching. <laughs> my sister's <laughs> nodding as she listens to this. Yes, yes. There is no ego. Yes. Uh, I have been criticized my entire life. Mm-hmm. But I think both sort of growing up with so many siblings, but also growing up in sort of a blue collar family offered a lot of values and experiences that I really feel have helped me sort of succeed in my professional pathway now. So I value having been one of five kids for sure. Yeah. My youngest brother was a pleasant surprise, so I hope <laughs> I, I hope he doesn't get upset about it. But <laughs> I think my younger sister knows that because we definitely use that as leverage over her for most of her life. So yes. again, if she's listening, I'm sure she feels the same way. Yeah. Um, but it's good to know that you were wanted, even if at one point you were a little bit of a surprise. Yes. <laughs> I read an article where you talked a little bit about women and girls and the mm. way that we're raised from a very early age, believing that we need to be protected. Mm. And I have a great story that I always tell about my father once we were talking about curfew. And as I said, I have an older brother and a younger brother. And my older brother and I are very close in age. I want to say 19 months apart. And I remember saying to him, I don't understand why Charles doesn't have a curfew. And my father always likes to have an outsized response. And he said, well, you know, Lydia, he's Southern, by the way, you know, Lydia, Charles will never end up in a ditch. And that was his explanation as to why I couldn't stay out as late as Charles. And the funny thing is, I remember thinking, yeah, well, that makes sense. Charles could never end up in a ditch. Now, I don't know what ditch we were talking about or why I was going to end up in a ditch, but I do remember that conversation so vividly. And I would love to hear more about what you meant by that and what that means in your own life. Yeah, it's so challenging. I mean, I think one of the hardest aspects of our work is engaging with so many different types of girls from different parts of the country and realizing the array of security threats that they confront in their homes, in their communities. And I think sort of how that shapes a lot of the work that we do at Girl Security is that we sort of develop this unfortunate skill set, which is, as you noted, we grow up feeling afraid of everything, Mm -hmm. but really having a false sense of security because a lot of the systems that are in place, whether it's the justice system or whether it's our security system, there really are very few protections for women. I mean, if you look at the percentage rates of domestic violence, women's actual security and how our society sees that is not actually imbued in the institutions that are supposed to be protecting women. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of hypocrisy. And the way that we sort of message that within our work is we have this unfortunate skill set of being very resilient, being very adaptive, and actually securing ourselves in spite of these threats. And it's not a skill set that certainly the national security sector hasn't valued. And I don't think our greater society sees it as a skill set as well, because teenage girls, women are still the punchline in a lot of jokes. And again, violence against women continues to increase. So we're not really valuing women's physical security at all. And I think for me as a child, I grew up pushing norms. I mean, I always felt, even in my youth, that an emphasis on my appearance or even any girl's appearance was such a focal point of how we were raised. And I always felt that I was sort of trying to hide myself. You know, I'd wear my brother's clothes. Mm -hmm. I rode his dirt bike. I cut my hair short. I really tried to sort of escape a lot of that sense of emphasis on sort of the vulnerability of myself as a girl. And fortunately, I had a supportive mom and a brother who sort of allowed me to become who I needed to be in order to to feel like myself and just sort of be in the world, to be honest. 
And so you stayed in Illinois through high school and then mm -hmm. you went to Boston College. I did. And you declared a major in poli-sci at what point? I declared my major second year. And what was that for you? That was just more of the interest that you learned in the films, wanting to understand a little bit more about the political landscape? Absolutely. I mean, I think I knew I wanted to do something in what I thought was foreign policy. I think it was just sort of the most natural way forward to get into a career of what I thought was something like foreign policy. But at that point, you said in an article too that you didn't see what college had prepared you for as national security. So when you are looking at the landscape, you're looking for your next step out of college. How did national security become what hooked you in? It's interesting. I worked at a law firm for about a hot second mm -hmm. when I first got out of college and realized that working 100 hours a week was not necessarily my dream job at the moment. And I really did want to do something. And like I said, what I thought was foreign policy and international affairs. But in Chicago, I didn't really see an opportunity for that. And I happened to just stumble upon a national security think tank. And again, I had no idea what I was getting into because I think like most people, I thought that national security was spies, essentially. Yeah, and uh, once I thought that was the case until this morning. Anyway, <laughs> just for everyone listening, I actually thought Lauren was a spy, but she's not. I think many people probably question if I was. But then um, you couldn't tell us if you were. So it's actually, true. It's yeah. all a ruse. This is all a ruse. <laughs> but yeah, and I remember being interviewed for the job and them describing national security. And I sort of took note of that. And I went back to my parents and I said, I just interviewed at this national national security think tank. And my mom was very suspicious because again, she too felt as though national security was spies or the military. Mm -hmm. And at that time too, the war in Iraq was happening and my brother was deployed. And so I think my mom was just looking at me thinking, I'm going to have two children who are going to be away from home in this conflict. And that was very scary for her. Yeah. I also remember you saying that September 11th of 2001 was really formative because you were in college during mm -hmm. that. So that was sort of helping to shape why you were headed in that direction as well. It was. And I think, again, when I started to work in national security and started to have access to conversations around decision-making with respect to the war in Iraq and in Afghanistan, it was really a stark realization that political science does not educate one about national security decision-making it does not educate one about the human experience of war. And so it really was a little bit of baptism by fire where I had this very personal connection to the war, but then I was also in a space where I was accessing these conversations that were being made on behalf of not just my brother's life, but the lives of everyone in the United States and then, of course, in a global community as well. And so when you're in a think tank, in national security. What is your day-to-day -day in that role? Like, What do you do every day? It's so funny. Whenever we ask girls what they think think tanks are, they're like, we just imagine a bunch of old people sitting in an actual tank thinking. I was like, that's <laughs> kind of what it is. Without the tank. Uh, without the actual no tank. tank. Yeah. But essentially, you know, think tanks play the role of usually analyzing policy and offering recommendations to political leadership. And so a lot of what I was doing at the time was mostly focused on national security law. So decisions that we were making um, with respect to what to do with uh, terrorist detainees in the battlefield or what were some of the cybersecurity legal norms that we were starting to conceptualize around surveillance. So a lot of it was just sort of reading and analyzing and having a lot of conversations with people who could help make policy and decisions with respect to that. I was low on the totem pole at the time, <laughs> but that was what I was privy to. And when you arrived, were you one of many women who were there? No, I was one of maybe one or two women in every meeting 
or conference I had ever been in, which was surprising to me. I was talking to my dad earlier and I worked construction through college in Chicago. And I said, you know, I didn't think that when I entered a professional field that it would be as homogenous as it was. But still, to this day, you will hear from women in national security say the same thing, that they're usually one, one or few, two or three women in any room in national security, unless it's a focused event for women in national security, of course. Yeah. It's so interesting because I feel like women do bring a different side to every conversation. I mean, if you think about war and you even talk about your brother, and you think about being a mom, which I know you have two children as well, sending your child to war, it's not that a father feels any differently about their child, but I do think there is something that for women, I don't know what it is, it brings us to the table in a different way, which I think is incredibly valuable. And often in many cases, I think too, we can be a little bit more measured in our approach to things, which again, over the course of, you know, if you have half a room that's filled with women and half a room that's filled with men, you're going to have that kind of discourse that you have. Again, that I talk about in my own family with two boys and two girls, the conversations can get heated and go in different ways. There can be different energy that comes to the table, but I think ultimately we're better because we hear each other's arguments. It's true. I was working at the National Security Think Tank, but I was also working with women from Iraq who were rebuilding their communities following the war, even amidst the war. And there are unique experiences, you know, whether it's women or people of color or gender minorities, every individual experience matters when the decisions affect the lives of everyone. And mm -hmm. I think that's what, when we talk about national security, it's the most powerful political realm in the world. Our defense budget is, you know, a third of the federal budget. And women and everyone else who's ever been excluded or not feel that they could access the field should have the ability to talk about these decisions and should have the ability for their ideas and experiences to be valued as part of these really big decisions that we make. And I go back to war because the war in Ukraine is happening. We had the withdrawal from Afghanistan and then the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were most recent. So it's still quite near, I think, in people's memory as opposed to Vietnam or you know even the Cold War. Absolutely. And I mean, if you look back to Afghanistan and what happened there, I mean, really the victims are the women, period. You know, they're the ones whose school's been cut off. All of the things that they were allowed to do, which weren't even what we're allowed to do, are still every single day, it seems like more liberties being taken away. And it's scary to watch that as a woman in another country because you feel so privileged that that is not here, but you know, we still have work to do. And then you look at something like that and realize how quickly it can all be taken away. And I think you're right, that's national security and that's why we do need to care. That's why women should be at the table. Yeah, absolutely. It's very true. And that forgetting of the human experience and the aftermath of one of these really big decisions is something certainly that I saw when my brother came back from Iraq. And again, the public's focus just shifts very suddenly. Mm -hmm. As you noted with Afghanistan, we've already moved on to something else. Yeah. And we do a program here with about 50 Afghan girls. Their lives are disrupted forever. Yeah. And so we can't forget about the aftermath of these decisions. And I think, again, bringing more diverse voices to the table, especially girls and women, is the way that we certainly shape better decisions, but also think differently about the outcomes and the implications of those outcomes for not just the girls and women, but for everybody as well. Yeah. And you left the think tank mm -hmm. by your own accord. Do you want to talk about that experience? Yeah, I was about seven years into my job and my employer had sexually assaulted me. Both of my sisters are mental health professionals, which it's always good to have people on retainer when you're you know, yeah, having trauma. I'm sure. <laughs> and my sister said, um, you know, your trauma doesn't need to be your focal point, but it can be your turning point. Mm -hmm. And I think for line. me, it was. And it was really important to hear that because even though I was sexually assaulted in my profession, 
I had had a hundred different experiences in the national security field that led to that moment. Mm -hmm. So the idea that when it did happen, it felt normal or expected was something that was quite disruptive for me at such a young age. And I pivoted out of the field, but in doing so, it really gave me the space I needed to process and sort of heal and rebuild my own confidence. You know, since this is about confidence was it allowed me to rebuild my confidence in a way that I value now. And it was very much a turning point for me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. I'm sure that that's not an easy thing to talk about. It isn't, but I think we have to talk about it because it's such a common practice in the workplace and it certainly still is a national security. And I think if I'm not talking about it or someone else isn't talking about it, who will? And we already have young women in our program who are reporting similar experiences. And so... I think we need to strip back the idea that it's not normal to talk about it. Right. So I feel like I have to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because honestly, if you have been through it, who better to share and who better to make other people feel comfortable about coming forward than somebody who has been through it and is open about it as well. It is true. And I think a lot of our mission and messaging around, again, how little we value women's physical security and girls' physical security it allows me the space to bring in my personal experience with it and sort of speak certainly my truth about my experience, but I think it resonates with just statistically most women who have had similar experiences as well. And I think it puts a fine point on this idea that we try to talk about girl security, which is we can you know, launch every war we want abroad to try to secure democratic ideals in other countries, But when girls and women in this country statistically may be sexually assaulted or raped one out of five or three out of five, are we actually advancing democratic ideals? Um, There's just so much in there that I think we need to have a real conversation about right now. So you left the think tank, but you didn't go straight into girl security. So I didn't. talk to me about the next step for you. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I literally bumped in to someone I'd met through my former job who became a mentor of mine. He passed away in April of 2020. And I think he like literally saw me on the street after I had left my position. And I think he probably saw the look on my face and he just said, what's up? And I just said, I left my job and I'm in law school and paying for my school. I need a job, I need to work. And so he said, I'm looking for someone to manage two lawsuits against the city of Chicago for me. And I need someone who understands data and policy. And those were two things that I'd really sort of immersed myself in in my former position. So... Then and there, I realized I need to pay for school, so I'm going to start a (laughs) consulting company, which is mostly what people do. And I ended up spending a decade working on two lawsuits against the city of Chicago for misuse of federal fair housing dollars and racial segregation. And it was the most impactful work I'd ever done, and I'm very appreciative for it. And probably so many lessons learned. So many lessons learned. Lessons learned about what it means to be a good mentor and a good leader and what it means to give people space to grow and to do what they do well. And certainly a lot of lessons learned around systemic discrimination and how invisible sometimes the most harmful forms of discrimination are. And again, the need to really focus people's attention on uprooting the causes of that discrimination in our society, whether it's race or gender or whatever else it may be. A lot of people will sit back and see things that are wrong and comment on them. Oh, that is a problem. That's really a shame. What did it take for you to finally put a stake in the ground and start Girl Security? Was it 10 years in this company? Was there a catalyst? What was your turning point for this? I actually had the idea for Girl Security when I was 22. 
I wrote down a kind of concept note for it and I emailed my brother and I'm going to say this on this podcast that he wrote back and said, no one would ever support an organization for girls in this space. So said like a real brother. Exactly. (laughs) I have a screenshot of it that I'm going to keep. I I send it over to him every now and then. But um, half of being a sibling is just proving your siblings wrong. 100%. That's 100%. That is literally half of it. It's all of it. It's actually most of it. (laughs) So I had the idea early on. And then when I had my experience, I really just sort of put it away. And then 2016 happened and there was a more national conversation around cybersecurity and disinformation. You know, fake news was just everywhere. And I had a child, I had two children and I looked at my kids and I just thought, I need to transform my experience into something that I know not just they need, but all youth need, which is really a space to learn about these really important matters in a thoughtful and caring way. Mm. And so I really seized the opportunity with the notion that fake news and disinformation and cyber, which are national security threats, Mm -hmm. were positioned to start going out to communities and engaging with girls about what they thought national security meant. And once I started to really understand how deep the learning gap was, and also started to see that girls were approaching me after programming and say, I want to go into this field. That was sort of the catalyzing series of events that led to it. So talk to me, Brass Tacks. What does girl security do on a daily basis? How are you getting into the places? How are you finding these girls and young women? Yeah, absolutely. Our primary focus is really on getting girls, women, and gender minorities into the national security workforce. We start at the high school level. So we have a mentoring program, a workforce training program, and then professional advancement as well. Part of it is intentional by design. You know, we focus on communities that are considered low opportunity, sort of by IRS standards. You know, they're underinvested. They're often in low-income areas. And oftentimes as well, the communities are targeted by violence, different types of violence. Of course, we're bringing that violence against girls and women narrative into the work as well. And is this a partner? Are you looking for nonprofits to partner with or how does that work? Sometimes we do. Usually we're going into schools and community-based organizations or, you know, different types of member-based associations. But we've also partnered with the Girl Scouts of New York and Greater Chicago. So we do partner with other nonprofits as well that have a broader reach. Because again, even if every girl who comes into our program doesn't pursue a career, we want them to feel like they can sit at a table and have a conversation about what they're reading in the news Mm -hmm. and feel confident in doing that. How do you find the gap? Are you closing this gap? Are you walking in and people have absolutely no idea about this field when you walk into this for the first time? And then how long does it take for people to understand it and then eventually maybe even want to go into it? It's interesting. One might think it might vary Mm -hmm. depending upon a population's access to certain information or education. But I would say generally across the board, very few young people know what national security is beyond some association that they have with pop culture or some kind of cultural representation of it. I mean, even for this generation, 9-11 is sort of like their Pearl Harbor. So they don't have that personal connection, but they do understand school safety, school Mm -hmm. shootings. They now understand the pandemic, which is a national security challenge. And so it's really, it doesn't, it's not a huge leap to bridge the gap for them between providing them with an understanding of how we've defined national security historically and sort of what our national security landscape looks now. 
And I would say for us, a measure of success is when we have a high school student who enrolls in our mentoring program. And then within six months or a year, they might enroll in our workforce training program. Mm -hmm. And that takes them into college or career. And then the next step, of course, is tracking them into their first career internship, which is, you know, sort of the organization coming full circle. And then a next step with them becoming a mentor. So mentoring someone who's coming up behind them and sort of creating that culture of mentorship as well. That's fantastic. I love that you're not only helping people move through, but then continuing to give back even as you continue moving forward in your own career. You have to. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know about you, but I know a common narrative for us is, you know, even the senior women in our space who serve as mentors, they too were one of few women. Mm -hmm. And they will admit that maybe I wasn't a great advocate for other women in my organization, or because there were so few of us, we felt that we had to sort of be pitted against each other and sort of vie for that power position. And so we're even doing work with senior women leaders to sort of help them reframe, how do I actually become a sponsor and advocate for young women? And especially with this generation who will have a very different experience with just professionalism and and skill sets and those sorts of things. Yeah, it is so refreshing when you hear the conversations that take place openly. I think about just even sitting in a coffee shop and you'll hear two young women talking about something that happened at work and saying it with total you know, disgust about something that was said about someone and they have no problem talking up and speaking up, which is such an incredible thing and something I certainly didn't feel comfortable doing in my early 20s and frankly wasn't even aware of. You know, I remember a woman who worked on my team, we were in a meeting once and this man said something very inappropriate to me. I was pregnant, I was wearing a dress. He didn't know that I was pregnant. I was eight weeks pregnant with my second child and I'd just come back from having my first child and he said something like, you've really snapped your body back quickly. And I kind of laughed and I said, oh, thanks. You know, I didn't think anything of it. I was probably at this point in my mid thirties and we walked out and she was probably eight years younger than me. And she said, I can't believe that you laughed when he said that. And it had not even registered with me. I had no idea what she was talking about. I was like, what are you talking about? She said, when he made that comment about your body. And I was sort of like, no, I don't get it. She's like, he shouldn't be talking about your body. And it was such a wake-up call because not only was it something that should not have been said to me, but what example was I setting for the people below me when I just took it and it didn't say anything like that's inappropriate or I didn't think that that was right. I'm sorry that he said that and I need to talk to him about it. You shouldn't have heard that. But it's a learning curve, especially for a lot of us who went through two decades of work in a completely different style until really the past sort of five or six years where I feel like these conversations are openly talked about constantly. It's so true. And it's normalized. Yeah. And we, and, um, and I think it's really challenging to break or shift norms, especially in a professional setting where, as I said, you know, when I worked construction, no one ever made a comment. In fact, I think people really looking out for me because I was this crazy 18 year old person who thought I could lift, you know, 200 pound <laughs> dollies, but I never had an experience where I felt insecure. And so I think when you're in a professional setting and people are wearing suits, it creates this very surprising dynamic that, especially for someone in their early career, can be very upending um, and very disorienting. And I think all of us have work to do to shift those norms. And so part of what we also do in our program is role play those scenarios so that they can have sort of that muscle memory of okay, I remember we did that role play where someone said something and I reacted in this way. How do I hope I'll react? Knowing that sometimes we just can't react how we wish we could in hindsight. Yeah. And that has to be okay too, because we are not creating the situations in which people are saying those things about our bodies or whatever it is, but I'm sorry that happened as well. 
Is this something you're doing with girl security right now where you're also speaking to the men and the boys in the organizations or in the schools? I've often heard from colleagues and friends when I do speeches, because my first book was called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. So you can imagine that really people always think that that is for women only. What I've noticed in the past couple of years when I go in to speak, because the book came out in 2019, is it's actually open to everyone now. And my speeches have never been tailored towards men or women. I think, again, that goes back to having brothers and a very strong father, that I feel like everything I'm saying can be consumed by anyone. But with organizations now, you know, I just did a speech for a city, and I remember turning on my screen, there were 250 people, every age range, men and women. It was an incredible thing to see. It was just sort of page after page of everyone of every sort of gender diversity. And it was so refreshing because there have been so many times when people are sort of like, well, you're going to speak to our women's group. And there's, you know, one sponsor who's a man. And then there are a hundred women. And I always think to myself, things aren't going to change if we're having this conversation in an echo chamber. And it needs to be normalized, as you've said, because then it's not scary. Because I think the other side of this too is, I think a lot of men and boys don't know what to say sometimes. They don't have the language because they know what they should not say or they think they know what they should not say. But then they're sort of in this in-between space where they feel like if they open their mouths, it could be the wrong thing. So they just don't talk to women or don't invite women to do things. And therefore, women aren't getting that exposure again. It's so true. And my son always jokes, when are you going to start boys security? Yeah. I was like, we can start that together. But we are very intentional about how we engage with boys and men in our program. I mean, certainly at the sort of leadership level, it's so important to have men speaking out on these issues and advocating for more inclusive, safer workplaces and making the case of as to why diversity matters in national security, because there are lots of people right now making the case that diversity, equity, inclusion hurts our national security. And so we need those voices out there saying the representation of diverse people matter, and that includes women, and all of us will be better off if there are more diverse people with different experiences in the room. Just practically speaking, it will yield more data insights that will shape more informed decisions. That's number one. And I think number two is later on this year, we'll release a high school curriculum that will be open to everyone boys and girls and gender minorities will have access to the learning and training that we do within our workforce training program. All of our programming is trauma-informed. So, you know, we specifically design programming for populations that have had different types of experiences. And so where we see our space, certainly with boys and men, is is creating an alternative learning around national security. Because again, the major theorists Uh, who are cited and sort of form the basis of national security studies have been men. And one of my colleagues, Gina Bennett, who's former CIA and is an extraordinary person, uh, wrote something about this recently. You know, there are male theorists who we base our military strategy on who say things like, you know, women are beasts to be dominated. Um, So we try to make the case. That is not true. It is not true. For the record, If you're listening, that is not the case. (laughs) Not the case. Many, you know, centuries old. And... um, But the idea is that we're trying to make the case that we can't separate these longstanding ideals, albeit these well-respected individuals by the field, from how they saw women at the time. There's no question that their perspective on women shaped their analysis of these particular theories that are still being practiced and studied in schools. So with our curriculum, we're trying to strip that away and give girls and boys and gender minorities access to learning through an equity-informed lens without being sort of bridled by this history that really is based on misogyny. Yeah. There was an ad that came out recently that I know Girl Security put a little bit of light on. It was about the military. Mm -hmm. It was 
discussing really men and women's roles in the military. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and about girls' security's response? So CIA had a marketing campaign to try to attract more diverse recruits. And one of the featured people who's also an amazing woman named Stephanie LaRue, who's currently head of DEI for the entire intelligence community, was featured as one of those people sort of just showcasing who she was. And I guess what would be considered a not as traditional family environment. And she was lambasted both by the left and the right and her own community. And it's this idea that once again, we're sort of damned if we do or damned if we don't. If we try to highlight the stories of diverse people to make the case that their stories matter, there's going to be factions of the society that unleash a lot of hate and a lot of misogyny and a lot of racism and discrimination. But if we don't feature those stories, then we can't inspire the next generation of young people to consider careers in this space. And then we can't transform this space as well. Yeah. So what happens with girls' security? Where do you head from here? Obviously, there's a ton of work to be done. And I'd love to know what we're looking for next, Lauren. World domination. Is World the... <laughs> domination. You heard it here. Yeah. You heard it here Put in the podcast. In that. Put a pin. Um, I really think what we want to do over the next couple of years is focused more at the research and policy level, which is, again, ensuring that employers, you know, both in the public sector, so federal government, but our national security relies heavily on the private sector, the private tech sector, especially. We want to elevate a conversation with leadership across sectors to work with them to highlight the priority of DEI and security and to commit to workplaces that are safer for everyone so that we are not bringing girls and women and gender minorities into the workforce and setting them up in a space where they don't have an opportunity to be advanced or that they have an experience where they're where they're forced to leave the field, which happens as well still. So I think we're kind of on the next phase of our model, which is continuing to sort of flood the workforce with a highly diverse and skilled workforce, but also working with people to shift norms and outcomes ultimately. And I think in the long term, we fundamentally believe if you have a more diverse population of people making the most consequential decisions for the United States and the world, we are going to have better outcomes. What those outcomes look like, we don't know, but we know that they will be better outcomes for everybody. And the outcome ultimately will be world domination. It as will be. Discussed. And I have no <laughs> doubt if there's anyone who's going to do it, it is Lauren. Lauren, thank you so much for joining oh, me thank today. thank you for having me. Where can we find you on social, on LinkedIn? Are you writing? Let us know everything about you. Thank you so much. Um, well, you can find Girl Security at girlsecurity.org and at girlsecurity on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn as well. And you can find me on LinkedIn. So please uh, follow along. Absolutely. I know we'll be following along and cheering you on from the sidelines as you continue continued this incredible path towards, as we've talked about, world domination. <laughs> thank you so much. To all of my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in again. This is Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette. A special thanks to Joe, our incredible producer. Thank Round of applause Joe. for Joe. <laughs> and to all of our guests who are stopping by the glass front window <laughs> as we do this podcast in Rockefeller Center. I look forward to seeing you all next week. And I want to leave you with this one thought. Lauren talks about a turning point in her life. Are you looking for that turning point? Are you creating that turning point? Send us a DM on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and let us know what that turning point looks for you and let us know if there's anything we can do to help you get there. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. I can't wait to be with you again next week. Have a good one. 